Book Two, Section Eighteen of On Duties by Cicero, translated by Walter Miller. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Eighteen. Now, as touching that second division of gifts of money, those which are prompted by a spirit of generosity, we ought to look at different cases differently. The case of the man who is overwhelmed by misfortune is different from that of the one who is seeking to better his condition, though he suffers from no actual distress. It will be the duty of charity to incline more to the unfortunate, unless, perchance, they deserve their misfortune. But of course we ought by no means to withhold our assistance altogether from those who wish for aid, not to save them from utter ruin, but to enable them to reach a higher degree of fortune but in selecting worthy cases we ought to use judgment and discretion for as ennius says so admirably good deeds misplaced methinks are evil deeds furthermore the favour conferred upon a man who is good and grateful finds its reward in such a case not only in his own goodwill but in that of others for when generosity is not indiscriminate giving it wins most gratitude and people praise it with more enthusiasm because goodness of heart in a man of high station becomes the common refuge of everybody pains must therefore be taken to benefit as many as possible with such kindnesses that the memory of them shall be handed down to children and to children's children so that they too may not be ungrateful for all men detest ingratitude and look upon the sin of it as a wrong committed against themselves also because it discourages generosity and they regard the ingrate as the common foe of all the poor ransoming prisoners from servitude and relieving the poor is a form of charity that is a service to the state as well as to the individual and we find in one of crassus's orations the full proof given that such beneficence used to be the common practice of our order this form of charity then i much prefer to the lavish expenditure of money for public exhibitions the former is suited to men of worth and dignity the latter to those shallow flatterers if i may call them so who tickle with idle pleasure so to speak the fickle fancy of the rabble it will moreover befit a gentleman to be at the same time liberal in giving and not inconsiderate in exacting his dues but in every business relation in buying or selling in hiring or letting in relations arising out of adjoining houses and lands to be fair reasonable often freely yielding much of his own right and keeping out of litigation as far as his interest will permit and perhaps even a little farther for it is not only generous occasionally to abate a little of one's rightful claims but it is sometimes even advantageous we should however have a care for our personal property for it is discreditable to let it run through our fingers but we must guard it in such a way that there shall be no suspicion of meanness or avarice for the greatest privilege of wealth is beyond all peradventure the opportunity it affords for doing good without sacrificing one's fortune hospitality also is a the theme of theophrastus's praise and rightly so for as it seems to me at least it is most proper that the homes of distinguished men should be open to distinguished guests and it is to the credit of our country also that men from abroad do not fail to find hospitable entertainment of this kind in our city 
it is moreover a very great advantage too for those who wish to obtain a powerful political influence by honourable means to be able through their social relations with their guests to enjoy popularity and to exert influence abroad for an instance of extraordinary hospitality theophrastus writes that at athens simon was hospitable even to the lachaeids the people of his own deme for he instructed his bailiffs to that end and gave them orders that every attention should be shown to any lachaeid who should ever call at his country home nineteen again the kindnesses shown not by gifts of money but by personal service are bestowed sometimes upon the community at large sometimes upon individual citizens to protect a man in his legal rights to assist him with counsel and to serve as many as possible with that sort of knowledge tends greatly to increase one's influence and popularity thus among the many admirable ideas of our ancestors was the high respect they always accorded to the study and interpretation of the excellent body of our civil law and down to the present unsettled times the foremost men of the state have kept this profession exclusively in their own hands but now the prestige of legal learning has departed along with offices of honour and positions of dignity and this is the more deplorable because it has come to pass in the lifetime of a man who in knowledge of the law would easily have surpassed all his predecessors while in honour he is their peer service such as this then finds many to appreciate it and is calculated to bind people closely to us by our good services closely connected with this profession furthermore is the gift of eloquence it is at once more popular and more distinguished for what is better than eloquence to awaken the admiration of one's hearers or the hopes of the distressed or the gratitude of those whom it has protected it was to eloquence therefore that our fathers assigned the foremost rank among the civil professions the door of opportunity for generous patronage to others then is wide open to the orator whose heart is in his work and who follows the custom of our forefathers in undertaking the defence of many clients without reluctance and without compensation my subject suggests that at this point i express once more my regret at the decadence not to say the utter extinction of eloquence and i should do so did i not fear that people would think that i were complaining on my own account we see nevertheless what orators have lost their lives and how few of any promise are left how far fewer there are who have ability and how many there are who have nothing but presumption but though not all no not even many can be learned in the law or eloquent as pleaders still anybody may be of service to many by canvassing in their support for appointments by witnessing to their character before juries and magistrates by looking out for the interests of one and another and by soliciting for them the aid of juris consults or of advocates those who perform such services win the most gratitude and find a most extensive sphere for their activities of course those who pursue such a course do not need to be warned for the point is self-evident to be careful when they seek to oblige some not to offend others for oftentimes they hurt those whom they ought not or those whom it is inexpedient to offend if they do it inadvertently it is carelessness 
if designedly, inconsiderateness. A man must apologize also to the best of his ability if he has involuntarily hurt anyone's feelings, and explain why what he has done was unavoidable, and why he could not have done otherwise, and he must by future services and kind offices atone for the apparent offence. 20. Now, in rendering helpful service to people, we usually consider either their character or their circumstances, and so it is an easy remark, and one commonly made, to say that in investing kindnesses we look not to people's outward circumstances, but to their character. The phrase is admirable, but who is there, pray, that does not in performing a service set the favour of a rich and influential man above the cause of a poor, though most worthy person? For, as a rule, our will is more inclined to the one from whom we expect a prompter and speedier return. But we should observe more carefully how the matter really stands. The poor man of whom we spoke cannot return a favour in kind, of course, but if he is a good man he can do it at least in thankfulness of heart. As some one has happily said, a man has not repaid money if he still has it. If he has repaid it, he has ceased to have it, but a man still has the sense of favour if he has returned the favour, and if he has the sense of the favour he has repaid it. On the other hand, they who consider themselves wealthy, honoured, the favourites of fortune, do not wish even to be put under obligations by our kind services. Why, they actually think that they have conferred a favour by accepting one, however great, and they even suspect that a claim is thereby set up against them, or that something is expected in return. Nay, more, it is bitter as death to them to have accepted a patron, or to be called clients. Your man of slender means, on the other hand, feels that whatever is done for him is done out of regard for himself, and not for his outward circumstances. Hence he strives to show himself grateful not only to the one who has obliged him in the past, but also to those from whom he expects similar favours in the future. And he needs the help of many, and his own service, if he happens to render any in return, he does not exaggerate, but he actually depreciates it. This fact, furthermore, should not be overlooked that if one defends a wealthy favourite of fortune, the favour does not extend further than to the man himself, or possibly to his children. But if one defends a man who is poor, but honest and upright, all the lowly who are not dishonest, and there is a large proportion of that sort among the people, look upon such an advocate as a tower of defence raised up for them. I think, therefore, that kindness to the good is a better investment than kindness to the favourites of fortune. We must, of course, put forth every effort to oblige all sorts and conditions of men, if we can. But if it comes to a conflict of duty on this point, we must, I should say, follow the advice of Themistocles. When someone asked his advice whether he should give his daughter in marriage to a man who was poor but honest, or to one who was rich but less esteemed, he said, For my part, I prefer a man without money to money without a man but the moral sense of to-day is demoralized and depraved by our worship of wealth. Of what concern to any one of us is the size of another man's fortune? It is perhaps an advantage to its possessor, but not always even that. But suppose it is. He may, to be sure, have more money to spend, but how is he any the better man for that? Still, 
if he is a good man as well as a rich one let not his riches be a hindrance to his being aided if only they are not the motive to it but in conferring favours our decision should depend entirely upon a man's character not on his wealth the supreme rule then in the matter of kindnesses to be rendered by personal service is never to take up a case in opposition to the right nor in defence of the wrong for the foundation of enduring reputation and fame is justice and without justice there can be nothing worthy of praise twenty one now since we have finished the discussion of that kind of helpful services which concern individuals we must next take up those which touch the whole body politic and the state of these public services some are of such a nature that they concern the whole body of citizens others that they affect individuals only and these latter are the more productive of gratitude if possible we should by all means attend to both kinds of service but we must take care in protecting the interests of individuals that what we do for them shall be beneficial or at least not prejudicial to the state gaius gracchus inaugurated largesses of grain on an extensive scale this had a tendency to exhaust the exchequer marcus octavius inaugurated a moderate dole this was both practicable for the state and necessary for the commons it was therefore a blessing both to the citizens and to the state the man in an administrative office however must make it his first care that every one shall have what belongs to him and that private citizens suffer no invasion of their property rights by act of the state it was a ruinous policy that Philippus proposed when in his tribuneship he introduced his agrarian bill. However, when his law was rejected, he took his defeat with good grace, and displayed extraordinary moderation. But in his public speeches on the measure he often played the demagogue, and that time viciously when he said that there were not in the state two thousand people who owned any property. That speech deserves unqualified condemnation, for it favoured an equal distribution of property, and what more ruinous policy than that could be conceived? For the chief purpose in the establishment of constitutional state and municipal governments was that individual property rights might be secured. For although it was by nature's guidance that men were drawn together into communities, it was in the hope of safeguarding their possessions that they sought the protection of cities." the administration should also put forth every effort to prevent the levying of a property tax, and to this end precautions should be taken long in advance. Such a tax was often levied in the times of our forefathers on account of the depleted state of their treasury and their incessant wars. But if any state, I say any, for I would rather speak in general terms than forebode evils to our own, however I am not discussing our own state but states in general, if any state ever has to face a crisis requiring the imposition of such a burden, every effort must be made to let all the people realize that they must bow to the inevitable if they wish to be saved, and it will also be the duty of those who direct the affairs of the state to take measures that there shall be an abundance of the necessities of life. It is needless to discuss the ordinary ways and means, for the duty is self-evident, it is necessary only to mention the matter. But the chief thing in all public administration and public service is to avoid even the slightest suspicion of self-seeking. 
I would, says Gaius Pontius the Samnite, that fortune had withheld my appearance until a time when the Romans began to accept bribes, and that I had been born in those days. I should then have suffered them to hold their supremacy no longer. I, but he would have had many generations to wait, for this plague has only recently infected our nation, and so I rejoice that Pontius lived then instead of now, seeing that he was so mighty a man. It is not yet a hundred and ten years since the enactment of Lucius Piso's bill to punish extortion. There had been no such law before, but afterward came so many laws, each more stringent than the other, so many men were accused and so many convicted, so horrible a war was stirred up on account of the fear of what our courts would do to still others, so frightful was the pillaging and plundering of the allies when the laws and courts were suppressed, that now we find ourselves strong not in our own strength, but in the weakness of others. 22. Panetius praises Africanus for his integrity in public life. Why should he not? But Africanus had other and greater virtues. The boast of official integrity belongs not to that man alone, but also to his times. When Paulus got possession of all the wealth of Macedon, and it was enormous, he brought into our treasury so much money that the spoils of a single general did away with the need for a tax on property in Rome for all time to come. But to his own house he brought nothing save the glory of an immortal name. Africanus emulated his father's example, and was none the richer for his overthrow of Carthage. And, what shall we say, of Lucius Mummius, his colleague in the censorship, was he one penny the richer when he had destroyed to its foundations the richest of cities? He preferred to adorn Italy rather than his own house. And yet, by the adornment of Italy, his own house was, as it seems to me, still more splendidly adorned. There is, then, to bring the discussion back to the point from which it digressed, no vice more offensive than avarice, especially in men who stand foremost and hold the helm of state, for to exploit the state for selfish profit is not only immoral, it is criminal, infamous. And so the oracle, which the Pythian Apollo uttered, that Sparta should not fall from any other cause than avarice, seems to be a prophecy not to the Lacedaemonians alone, but to all wealthy nations as well. They who direct the affairs of state, then, can win the good will of the masses by no other means more easily than by self-restraint and self-denial. But they who pose as friends of the people, and who for that reason either attempt to have agrarian laws passed, in order that the occupants may be driven out of their homes, or propose that money loaned should be remitted to the borrowers, are undermining the foundations of the commonwealth. First of all, they are destroying harmony, which cannot exist when money is taken away from one party and bestowed upon another and second they do away with equity which is utterly subverted if the rights of property are not respected for as i said above it is the peculiar function of the state and the city to guarantee to every man the free and undisturbed control of his own particular property and yet when it comes to measures so ruinous to public welfare they do not gain even that popularity which they anticipate for he who has been robbed of his property is their enemy he to whom it has been turned over 
actually pretends that he had no wish to take it and most of all when his debts are cancelled the debtor conceals his joy for fear that he may be thought to have been insolvent whereas the victim of the wrong both remembers it and shows his resentment openly thus even though they to whom property has been wrongfully awarded be more in number than they from whom it has been unjustly taken they do not for that reason have more influence for in such matters influence is measured not by numbers but by weight and how is it fair that a man who never had any property should take possession of lands that had been occupied for many years or even generations and that he who had them before should lose possession of them twenty three now it was on account of just this sort of wrongdoing that the spartans banished their ephor lysander and put their king agis to death an act without precedent in the history of sparta from that time on and for the same reason dissensions so serious ensued that tyrants arose the nobles were sent into exile and the state though most admirably constituted crumbled to pieces nor did it fall alone but by the contagion of the ills that starting in lacedaemon spread widely and more widely it dragged the rest of greece down to ruin what shall we say of our own gracchi the sons of that famous tiberius gracchus and grandsons of africanus was it not strife over the agrarian issue that caused their downfall and death aretas of sicyon on the other hand is justly praised when his city had been kept for fifty years in the power of its tyrants he came over from argos to sicyon secretly entered the city and took it by surprise he fell suddenly upon the tyrant nicocles recalled from banishment six hundred exiles who had been the wealthiest men of the city and by his coming made his country free but he found great difficulty in the matter of property and its occupancy for he considered it most unjust on the one hand that those men should be left in want whom he had restored and of whose property others had taken possession and he thought it hardly fair on the other hand that tenure of fifty years standing should be disturbed for in the course of that long period many of those estates had passed into innocent hands by right of inheritance many by purchase many by dower he therefore decided that it would be wrong either to take the property away from the present incumbents or to let them keep it without compensation to its former possessors so when he had come to the conclusion that he must have money to meet the situation he announced that he meant to make a trip to alexandria and gave orders that matters should remain as they were until his return and so he went in haste to his friend ptolemy then upon the throne the second king after the founding of alexandria to him he explained that he wished to restore constitutional liberty to his country and presented his case to him and being a man of the highest standing he easily secured from that wealthy king assistance in the form of a large sum of money and when he had returned with this to sicyon he called into council with him fifteen of the foremost men of the city with them he investigated the cases both of those who were holding possession of other people's property and of those who had lost theirs and he managed by evaluation of the properties to persuade some that it was more desirable to accept money and surrender their present holdings 
others he convinced that it was more to their interest to take a fair price in cash for their lost estates than to try to recover possession of what had been their own as a result harmony was preserved and all parties went their way without a word of complaint a great statesman and worthy to have been born in our commonwealth that is the right way to deal with one's fellow-citizens and not as we have already witnessed on two occasions to plant the spear in the forum and knock down the property of citizens under the auctioneer's hammer but yon greek like a wise and excellent man thought that he must look out for the welfare of all and this is the highest statesmanship and the soundest wisdom on the part of a good citizen not to divide the interests of the citizens but to unite all on the basis of impartial justice let them live in their neighbor's house rent-free why so in order that when i have bought built kept up and spent my money upon a place you may without my consent enjoy what belongs to me what else is that but to rob one man of what belongs to him and to give to another what does not belong to him and what is the meaning of an abolition of debts except that you buy a farm with my money that you have the farm and i have not my money twenty four we must therefore take measures that there shall be no indebtedness of a nature to endanger the public safety it is a menace that can be averted in many ways but should a serious debt be incurred we are not to allow the rich to lose their property while the debtors profit by what is their neighbours for there is nothing that upholds a government more powerfully than its credit and it can have no credit unless the payment of debts is enforced by law never were measures for the repudiation of debts more strenuously agitated than in my consulship men of every sort and rank attempted with arms and armies to force the project through but i opposed them with such energy that this plague was wholly eradicated from the body politic indebtedness was never greater debts were never liquidated more easily or more fully for the hope of defrauding the creditor was cut off and payment was enforced by law but the present victor though vanquished then still carried out his old design when it was no longer of any personal advantage to him so great was his passion for wrong-doing that the very doing of wrong was a joy to him for its own sake even when there was no motive for it those then whose office it is to look after the interests of the state will refrain from that form of liberality which robs one man to enrich another above all they will use their best endeavours that every one shall be protected in the possession of his own property by the fair administration of the law and the courts that the poorer classes shall not be oppressed because of their helplessness and that envy shall not stand in the way of the rich to prevent them from keeping or recovering possession of what justly belongs to them they must strive too by whatever means they can in peace or in war to advance the state in power in territory and in revenues such service calls for great men it was commonly rendered in the days of our ancestors if men will perform duties such as these they will win popularity and glory for themselves and at the same time render eminent service to the state now in this list of rules touching expediency antipater of tyre a stoic philosopher who recently died at athens claims that two points were overlooked by panetius 
the care of health and of property i presume that the eminent philosopher overlooked these two items because they present no difficulty at all events they are expedient although they are a matter of course i will say a few words on the subject individual health is preserved by studying one's own constitution by observing what is good or bad for one by constant self-control in supplying physical wants and comforts but only to the extent necessary to self-preservation by foregoing sensual pleasures and finally by the professional skill of those to whose science these matters belong as for property it is a duty to make money but only by honourable means it is a duty also to save it and increase it by care and thrift these principles xenophon a pupil of socrates has set forth most happily in his book entitled oikonomikos when i was about your present age i translated it from the greek into latin but this whole subject of acquiring money investing money i wish i could include also spending money is more profitably discussed by certain worthy gentlemen on change than could be done by any philosophers of any school for all that we must take cognizance of them for they come fitly under the head of expediency and that is the subject of the present book twenty five but it is often necessary to weigh one expediency against another for this as i stated is a fourth point overlooked by panetius for not only are physical advantages regularly compared with outward advantages and outward with physical but physical advantages are compared with one another and outward with outward physical advantages are compared with outward advantages in some such way as this one may ask whether it is more desirable to have health than wealth external advantages with physical thus whether it is better to have wealth than extraordinary bodily strength while the physical advantages may be weighed against one another so that good health is preferred to sensual pleasure strength to agility outward advantages also may be weighed against one another glory for example may be preferred to riches an income derived from city property to one derived from the farm to this class of comparisons belongs that famous saying of old cato's when he was asked what was the most profitable feature of an estate he replied raising cattle successfully what next to that raising cattle with fair success and next raising cattle with but slight success and fourth raising crops and when his questioner said how about money-lending cato replied how about murder from this as well as from many other incidents we ought to realize that expediencies have often to be weighed against one another and that it is proper for us to add this fourth division in the discussion of moral duty let us now pass on to the remaining problems end of book two